0: and my brother Dr. Steven Ned, for this week's body chat about antipsychotic medications. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Stevenette as a patient at his office. Here we are, Steve. Are you ready for this one? Let's do it. We're doing it again because I forgot to press record the last time, and it was probably the best episode that we've ever done. So now we have to try and top that doing it a second time. So for those of you that are listening, you're getting to hear an even more polished version of this episode.
1: Yeah. And you'll be getting lots of noogies when you come to Clearwater next time. No, I won't. Yes, you will.
0: No, I won't. Um, All right. So what are the best known drugs in this category? We're talking about antipsychotic medications. So what are the ones that people would probably have heard about before?
1: All right. Well, these include the original antipsychotics, which are the neuroleptics, and those are Haldol and Thorazine. And then the newer antipsychotics, which were introduced in the 1990s and are known as atypical antipsychotics to distinguish them from the first generation antipsychotics. And they include several that have been heavily advertised on TV, such as Abilify, Seroquel, and Risperdal. All right. So
0: those are the more commonly known ones. When were the first ones used, and where were they used?
1: Well, I'd like to start out by saying that the discovery of the first antipsychotics is very similar to that of the big three artificial sweeteners that we covered in podcast number 12. And those are saccharin, which is the pink packet, also known as sweet and low. Mm -hmm. Aspartame, the blue packet, also known as NutraSweet or equal. And sucralose, the yellow packet, also known as Splenda. So if you recall, all these were discovered by accident by chemists who either spilled the chemicals or drugs that they were experimenting with, or they licked their fingers to notice that they happened to be sweet. Well, in the case of the first antipsychotic neuroleptic, Thorazine, it was also discovered by accident in 1950 when it was originally produced as an antihistamine. But it also happened to be found to be helpful in treating the symptoms of psychosis, especially seen in people with schizophrenia. By the way, neuroleptics, which translates to nerve seizing or brain seizing, are also referred to as major tranquilizers. And uh, Thorazine became notorious as a tranquilizer in psychiatric wards back in the 50s and 60s and had the same effect as a chemical straitjacket or a chemical lobotomy. Thorazine was first marketed and used in 1953, even though there were no clinical trials performed to show that it was safe, effective, or compared favorably to existing treatments. And well, comparing it to existing treatments for psychosis at that time was not much of a stretch because the bar was set pretty doggone low. So I'd like to give a little history lesson about that. All right. So the first half of the 20th century prior to the introduction of the antipsychotics, the management of psychosis primarily consisted of lengthy admissions to asylums and the use of sedative drugs, and in some countries the use of mechanical restraints to control uh, people with severely disturbed behavior. Then during the 1940s and 50s, treatments for schizophrenia became even more barbaric and inhumane since they included insulin coma treatment leucotomy, which is also known as the prefrontal lobotomy brain surgery, and ECT, also known as electroconvulsive shock treatment. So insulin coma treatment and prefrontal lobotomy have been banned and are no longer in use today, thank goodness. But because there are highly questionable studies showing that frying people's brains is somehow beneficial, Electroconvulsive shock treatment is still being used on people today, you know, on approximately 100,000 Americans per year, including veterans, the elderly, pregnant women, and children five years old and younger. So ECT passes up to 460 volts of electricity through the brain, causing a grand mal seizure that can result in permanent memory loss and brain damage. And psychiatrists are still trying to find ways to expand the use of ECT in their patients, including children. And so just two months ago, the FDA approved a device costing about $1,000 for home use that zaps a low-level electrical pulse through the forehead of 7- to 12-year-olds as a treatment for ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Fortunately, there's a movement led by the Citizens' Commission on Human Rights to ban ECT outright especially with children, and so far they've been instrumental in obtaining informed consent rights for parents and patients, and a prohibition of uh, ECT on children and adolescents in California, Colorado, Tennessee, Texas, and even in Western Australia, where if electroshock is administered to anyone younger than 14, then criminal penalties, including jail time, are being enforced.
0: Thank goodness. Yeah.
1: So, you know, we should leave a link to CCHR's campaign to ban ECT. It's really awesome because this page includes an article on 10 facts you may not know about ECT and also a link to legislation that they created, which is a statute to ban the use of ECT on children and others. Uh, There's also a petition that they set up uh, at change.org to ban electroshock therapy on children, the elderly and vulnerable patients. So we can leave a link for that too. Very good. Yeah. You know, I mean, in my opinion, any health professionals that still support this need to have their heads examined, literally. And since they think it's so great, I mean, I dare them to undergo it themselves. It would be real interesting to see how many would raise their hands if you took a poll on how many would willingly receive a shock treatment for scientific purposes.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of them will be jumping to the front of that line. Yeah. Yes. So we are going to do a separate episode on ECT, electric shock therapy. Now, we're talking about these medications. And as we've discussed in every one of the previous episodes, and we will be discussing in the next episode, typically in medical treatment, there's going to be some type of objective testing done to determine that a person needs a specific type of medicine or a specific type of treatment that is the standard that's used. Is there any kind of objective test, any kind of lab test or anything like that that can be used to show that someone needs to be prescribed an antipsychotic medication?
1: Well, just like the previous psych drugs that we've covered, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, there are none. And just like the previous conditions those drugs are prescribed for, These drugs are recommended based solely on symptoms. Uh, They're purported to handle a chemical imbalance in the brain, but there are currently no objective tests for these. Uh, Dr. Darshak Sangavi, who's a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School, he's one of many medical experts that publicly debunks the chemical imbalance theory. And he stated, despite pseudoscientific terms like chemical imbalance, nobody really knows what causes mental illness. There's no blood test or brain scan for major depression. No geneticist can diagnose schizophrenia. So I just want to add that back in our concussion podcast, which was number 52, I covered the fact that there's currently no imaging study such as an x-ray, CT scan, or MRI that can diagnose a concussion. But there are other objective tests along with questions that must be asked, in addition to signs and symptoms that will allow a medical professional such as myself to properly objectively diagnose someone with a concussion, as opposed to psychiatric disorders, which depend solely on symptoms, behavior, observation, and questionnaires. You know, I went over this uh, in that podcast on concussion. There's that sports concussion assessment tool that I use, and there's all kinds of objective tests that have to do with balance and other neurological things I can look at on a person to determine if they've had a concussion.
0: Okay. So there is a way of being able to test for that, but there isn't any type of test that's objective other than a questionnaire that you have the obsessive idiots, as I referred to them before, that get to vote on and come up with a name and say, I'll raise my hand. Yeah, we can call it that. And that is how they come up with these things. All right. Well, now that we've looked at that stupid approach, let's take a look at what some of the potential side effects are if somebody is prescribed an antipsychotic medication.
1: All right. Well, you know, in our introductory podcast on psychiatric drugs, I pointed out that some of the side effects of antipsychotic drugs include obesity, diabetes, stroke, cardiac events, respiratory problems delusional thinking, and of all things, psychosis. Mm -hmm. Plus, they're so powerful that they can actually cause brain shrinkage. Other common side effects include weight gain and high cholesterol. Now, I've already covered the fact that the older original antipsychotics were often used in psychiatric wards to sedate noisy and unruly patients diagnosed with psychosis or schizophrenia. These were notorious for having the effect of a chemical straitjacket and a chemical lobotomy. While the newer atypical antipsychotics have been promoted as having fewer damaging side effects than the older antipsychotics, but they actually have more severe physical effects, including blindness, fatal blood clots, heart irregularity, impotence, and sexual dysfunction. Now, there's also three other horrific side effects that I would like to cover that have to do with the antipsychotics. Okay. Okay, and the first one is called akathisia, which is a movement disorder that makes it very hard for an individual to stay still because it causes an urge to move that you can't control. Akathisia is derived from A, which means without, and kathisia, which means sitting, so when you combine it together, it means an inability to sit still. Akathisia also includes a terrible feeling of anxiety, anxiety. A sense of restlessness, a feeling that you want to crawl out of your skin, and it's also linked to assaultive, violent behavior. All antipsychotics can cause akathisia, but the older, first-generation antipsychotics are more likely to cause it than the newer ones. So I found a prominent biohazard waste disposal company called MedPro, and they give some alarming statistics on their website regarding the high rate of this condition Resulting from not only antipsychotic drugs, but also other drugs, including psychiatric medications that we've covered on previous episodes. So here's the breakdown: depending on the dosage, about fifty to eighty percent of people taking the older first generation antipsychotics develop akathisia.
0: That's really bad. I, I honestly I can't believe that it's still allowed to be prescribed. When it's got that much of a percentage of people having a serious condition as a side effect.
1: I know, I totally agree. Now, the rate for the newer antipsychotic neuroleptics is lower, but still very high at 30 to 40%. Mm-hmm. Coming in third are the antidepressants Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, and Selexa, with patients taking these drugs having about a 20% chance of suffering from akathisia symptoms. Now, see, here's the thing. I'm going to go back to that point because one
0: of the points that are made by proponents of different medications when somebody brings up potential side effects is they say it's so rare that these serious side effects occur and most of the time it's like you get a little bit of rash or something like that. So, that's why they say, well, that's why we shouldn't stop prescribing such and such because it's rare. Now, this isn't rare. 20% is one out of every five people that take Prozac or Zoloft or the other ones. And 30 to 40% is almost one out of three to two to three. So
1: it's like, seriously? I know. And then finally, and fourth is drug withdrawal from illegal drugs, including opioids, cocaine, barbiturates, and benzodiazepines. Now, another awful condition that results from using antipsychotics is one that we covered in our first podcast on psychiatric drugs, episode 77, and it's called tardive dyskinesia. Tardive means delayed, dys means abnormal, and kinesia means movement. So when you put this all together, you have a permanent drug-induced movement disorder characterized by uncontrollable jerky limb movements, facial grimacing, tongue contortions, and lip smacking. A 2008 study found that tardive dyskinesia occurs in about 4% of patients taking atypical antipsychotics compared to 5.5% with the older typical antipsychotics, Haldol and Thorazine. Now, although the risk is higher with the older medications, tardive dyskinesia usually occurs after someone has taken any of the medications for long periods of time, such as years which is much longer than pretty much all the clinical trials that have been done on atypical antipsychotics.
0: Yeah, so they don't really know. They can't say that the newer drugs are better because they haven't been in use
1: long enough to really tell. Or they haven't tested them long enough. Right. So the other horrendous side effect of antipsychotics is called neuroleptic malignant syndrome. This is a potentially fatal toxic reaction to both classes of antipsychotics. People that get this experience fevers and excessive sweating, confusion, agitation, and extreme muscle rigidity, plus heart issues including an irregular heartbeat and pulse, rapid heart rate, and irregular blood pressure. The high fevers and seizures associated with neuroleptic malignant syndrome have a 50% fatality rate if they aren't quickly recognized and treated. So while we're still on the subject of side effects, I would also like to share some information about a high-profile murder case that occurred back in 2001 and its connection to the antipsychotic drug Haldol along with the antidepressant Effexor. Okay. Yeah. So the information I'm about to share comes from the book that I've referenced in our other podcast on psychiatric drugs, The No-Nonsense Guide to Psychiatric Drugs by Dr. Moira Dolan. And what I'm going to do is just read a paragraph in this book that describes this incident. All right. All right. So it says, um, the patient and family must be alert to potential side effects so they are not mistakenly blamed on just more mental illness, as happened in the tragic story of Andrea Yates. Mm. Mrs. Yates was a mother of five, including a newborn. When her husband concluded she had postpartum depression based on an internet questionnaire, Her treatment included increasing doses of a neuroleptic drug, Haldol, despite having no psychotic symptoms initially. Exactly as warned on the manufacturer's package insert, she gradually developed disordered thinking. Instead of tapering down and off the offending drug at that point, the doctor prescribed even more medication. Eventually, her doctor documented she was psychotic from the Doll, He then ignored the drug maker's recommendation and stopped the drug suddenly, at the same time doubling the dose of her other psychiatric drug, Effexor. It was under these circumstances that she drowned each of her five children, tucked their bodies into bed, and called 911 to turn herself in. In addition to sudden withdrawal from Haldol and excessive dosing with Efexor, she suffered from polypharmacy, wherein drug interactions sharply increase the risk of adverse effects. Now, I'd like to give some additional thoughts on this. Okay. First of all, she was treated for postpartum depression with antidepressants and antipsychotics for some unexplained reason, even though she had no symptoms of psychosis at the start of treatment. Now, if you recall in our podcast on pregnancy nutrition, which was number 64, I went over postpartum depression in detail and revealed that it's basically caused by two different things. One, a quick drop in the female hormones, estrogen and progesterone after childbirth, which leads to mood swings and other mental issues. And two, Sleep deprivation, which can also affect hormone balance. Now, the antidepressant that her doctor doubled the dose of, Effexor, received a black box warning from the FDA in November of 2005, cautioning that it may increase the risk of, get this, homicidal thoughts and actions.
0: Yeah, it's too late for that. Yep.
1: So, you know, this warning wasn't on the drugs insert at the time of her crime, but it's likely that her case had something to do with them eventually adding it on. And for those of you who don't recall or didn't follow this case, she was actually tried twice for this. First time occurred in 2002 when she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. But then a second trial or retrial occurred in 2006 and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. This time she was sentenced to life in prison at a mental hospital. So, you know, if she wasn't guilty of murdering her five children, who was? Her doctor. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they should have also tried the doctor for mismanaging her case by not only putting her on antipsychotics, which were completely unnecessary for postpartum depression, but also suddenly taking her off the antipsychotic drug Haldol when the drug maker's recommendation said not to, and then doubling the antidepressant drug effects, which has been shown to increase homicidal thoughts and actions. I mean, this all likely could have easily been avoided.
0: That's correct. Pitiful. But that is unfortunately not that uncommon with doctors just going ahead and prescribing things based on what drug company salespeople tell them instead of actually reading all of the literature, reading the research studies, actually checking into it. I won't state any more of my opinions, but that is something that does go on. All right. So now that we've gone over some of the potential side effects Are there any potential causes of psychosis that aren't something that would need a drug that could be treatable in a less severe way?
1: All right. Well, first of all, I want to define what psychosis is. It's a group of symptoms related to mental health, but it's not a diagnosis or a condition by itself. All the symptoms of psychosis are related to losing touch with reality. And the two most characteristic symptoms are hallucinations, which are seeing or hearing things that aren't there and delusions, which are false beliefs that a person has despite evidence. Now, according to mental health experts, psychosis is most often caused by other mental illnesses, with schizophrenia being the most common, followed by bipolar disorder and major depression. But it's also been proven to be caused by head injuries, brain tumors or cysts, degenerative brain diseases like Parkinson's or Huntington's, dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, HIV and other infections that affect the brain, Certain types of epilepsy, stroke, prescription medications such as steroids and stimulants, and alcohol and certain illegal drugs, both during use and during withdrawal. Now, I found out something this week while researching that I had never heard of before, and it has to do with a very popular drug that has recently gone from being illegal to legal for medical use in 33 states and the District of Columbia, and legal for recreational use in 11 states, and that
0: is. Well, being in one of those 11 states, I know that's marijuana.
1: Correct. Now, you know, when it's promoted, you typically hear about all of its positive benefits, including reducing glaucoma, nausea, especially with uh, chemotherapy, inducing relaxation. Uh, It's an effective chronic pain reducer instead of taking potentially deadly opiates. And it's also been found to be helpful for sleep problems, multiple sclerosis, and epilepsy. But it does, like all drugs, have side effects. One of them that, again, I never heard of is called marijuana-induced psychosis. So in most people that experience this, the symptoms which are most commonly delusions, including paranoia and suspicions, uh, come on very quickly while using the drug and resolve soon after the drug has left the body. Uh, it's also associated with disorganized thinking and hallucinations, and uh, the experience can be very distressing and may require emergency treatment if the person is extremely distressed or at risk of harming himself or others. And You know, there's actually a diagnostic code for this in the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fifth edition. So um, huh, now I'm going to admit to something that some politicians in the past have skirted and that is, I tried marijuana a couple times in college, and I actually inhaled. Mm-hmm. And one of those, you know, one of those times, I totally experienced this phenomenon of delusion, because I literally was freaking out that I was going to get caught, and you know I kept looking over my shoulder for the police to show up, and you know this went on for about an hour until the effects wore off. So you know because of that, I decided, um, no thanks, I'll stick to alcohol from now on.
0: Okay. That tells us that there are things that can cause psychotic-type symptoms that aren't just some nebulous mental illness thing that can't be tested with any kind of an objective test, that there's actually something behind it that doesn't need to be chemically straitjacketed to treat it. So, the antipsychotics that are recommended, whether they're the new versions or the old versions are they ever prescribed for any kind of an off-label use for something other than what's deemed as psychosis?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we've covered in the past that Thorazine is FDA-approved for retractable hiccups, which are hiccups lasting for more than a month. Right. That was the thing you talked about with Dad. Yeah. Uh, Well, both Thorazine and Haldol have also been used off-label for persistent hiccups, which are hiccups that last more than two days and up to a month. And, you know, there's other off-label uses for the newer or atypical antipsychotics, uh, including disruptive behavior and aggression in youth. And, you know, we'll cover this in more detail in a minute when we look at antipsychotics being prescribed for children. And, you know, the newer or, again, atypical antipsychotics, which are mainly Risperidol, Seroquel, and Zyprexa, uh, they've also been prescribed off-label for ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, dementia in elderly patients, depression, eating disorders, insomnia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, uh, personality disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders, and Tourette's syndrome.
0: All of which, except possibly the last one, is a condition that was voted on labeled and voted on by a bunch of obsessive idiots instead of it being actually found through diagnostic or objective testing. So you've mentioned about children is it true that there's cases where children and even infants are being prescribed antipsychotics?
1: Well yeah, I mean I just mentioned a minute ago that they're used off label for disruptive behavior and aggression in youth and that includes conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder or ADHD. Now, these are frequently prescribed for young people, even though they've not been approved for these conditions, and the results are actually not very impressive. In fact, a 2012 review of eight randomized controlled trials that took place between 2000 and 2008 found that atypical antipsychotics reduced aggressive tendencies in children with disruptive behavior disorders, but the effects were only slightly significant, which is basically the same as a placebo. In addition to that, A 2011 survey of off-label uses of these same antipsychotics found that evidence supporting their effectiveness in children diagnosed with ADHD alone was low or very low. Now, the FDA has actually approved the newer antipsychotics for a number of conditions in children. They've approved some of them for use in adolescents aged 13 to 17 they are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Some of them have also been approved for use in children aged 10 to 17 with bipolar disorder. And another condition that two of them, Risperidol and Abilify, have been approved for in children as young as five years old and up to 16 is autism, since both medications have been found to reduce irritability, aggression, self-injury, tantrums, and mood swings in children with autism. I mean, in other words, it's being used as a chemical restraint. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a large study found that Risperidol, which was the first drug approved for children with autism and the most widely used, did reduce behavioral symptoms and lessen the rigid interest and repetitive behaviors typical of autism, but it had no effect on social and communication defects. Now, I also wanted to elaborate on some of the specific side effects regarding children taking these drugs. Okay. So a study involving 116 children with early-onset schizophrenia were given Risperidol and gained eight pounds on average after using it for eight weeks, whereas children taking Zyprexa gained 13 pounds on average, which prompted a safety review board to eliminate the testing of Zyprexa right away, which was pretty early on in that study. A 2013 study performed by researchers at Vanderbilt University found that children taking antipsychotics are three times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than children not taking these medications. And here's a good one. The drug label for Risperidol now contains a warning that some boys that take it may develop gynecomastia, which is an enlargement or swelling of breast tissue in males. Resperidol can boost levels of the pituitary hormone prolactin in the body, which is found in males, but its main purpose is to increase breast size and milk production in new mothers. Now, you know, we'll dig into similar situations in our sixth and final podcast on psychiatric drugs when we cover clinical trials, but I wanted to go over the fact here that the manufacturers of Resperidol, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, whose parent company is Johnson & Johnson, backed a study in 2003 that said it did not find a link between elevated prolactin levels in boys and gynecomastia or other side effects that could result from excess prolactin. Well, it turns out that Janssen was very naughty since evidence presented during a lawsuit against them showed that they actually omitted data on the drug's side effects from that study, including data about breast enlargement in males or, again, gynecomastia. So, you know, as a result of this, Janssen settled a lawsuit in 2013 brought by the FDA for, my goodness, $2.2 billion. The lawsuit alleged that Janssen aggressively marketed Risperidol between 2002 and 2003 for unapproved uses, including children with autism. In addition, a number of individual lawsuits followed, including one from a now 24-year-old man with autism who grew, (laughs) check this out, he grew size 46 double D breaths after taking Risperdal between 2002 and 2006. And in 2015, this man was awarded $2.2 million by a Philadelphia jury. Now, you know, since Risperdal was approved in 2006 for children with autism aged 5 through 16, and it now has a warning label on it that it can result in gynecomastia. Well, you know, it looks like if any boys or men that have grown breasts from taking it after 2006, they're out of luck. They're not going to be able to sue for that.
0: Gross is all I can say. And I'm looking forward to that episode having to do with clinical trials, because the more that comes out, it's like all these wonderful drugs that are released to fanfare and parades and all these Glowing stories throughout the press. There's, uh, it's almost one for one years later that it comes out that it's really bad for you. The studies weren't accurate. There was falsification. There's penalties and fines. People are being sued. They don't realize though that when a company makes like twenty billion dollars a year for ten years, that they've put aside like a hundred billion dollars for the lawsuits that they know they're going to come. Anyway, we'll get into that in a few weeks. So now that we've covered all of that,
1: is there anything else you'd like to say before we end? Yes. I'll be speaking at the Citizens Commission on Human Rights Office in Clearwater on Monday, July 1st at 6.30 p.m., which is five days after the initial airing of this episode. Now, you know, the talk I gave about two months ago was well-received, and so they've invited me back, and it's called... Alternative Solutions to Mental Health, Learn How Good Mental Health Can Be Achieved with Safe, Natural, and Non-Addictive Solutions. And, you know, when I gave that talk, I focused on two conditions primarily, uh, depression and ADHD, and I gave common physical and environmental causes of them, which, as you know, when you address the cause of something instead of treating the symptoms, then you actually have a chance to correct the condition instead of just managing or relieving it. I also spoke briefly on Tardive Dyskinesia since it was officially Tardive Dyskinesia Awareness Week in the state of Florida. So I'll probably touch on that again as I've gotten more information on it since then, including what we went over in this podcast. Excellent. So if anybody's in the Clearwater area and wants to
0: go, they should definitely go and see you go over this, even though some of it will be things that you've covered in these episodes. There will be information that you didn't cover in these episodes or that will be coming up in future episodes make sure you go to the CCHR office in Clearwater, which is on Fort Harrison.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And next week, we're going to get into ADD, ADHD, and those abbreviations that mean absolutely nothing, to be perfectly honest. So, we're going to go over that. Thanks for going over all of this this week, Steve. Next week, you'll be probably enjoying going over that because that was something that you would have been diagnosed with when you were a kid That wouldn't have been very good at all.
1: Yes. And, you know, we already did an episode on ADHD. This one's actually going to be more specifically on the stimulant drugs. The medications. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Nasty stuff. All right. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week and if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at That's info at To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.